Hello, and welcome to the podcast Buffy and the Art of Story Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. Today, we're talking about Season 6, Episode 1, Bargaining Part 1. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story expert, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com, where you can learn more about fiction writing, publishing, and book marketing. Along with a breakdown of Bargaining Part 1, today I'll talk about Conflicts between the characters that bring the audience into the brand new world of Buffy's friends without Buffy. Story questions that keep viewers on edge and longing for answers. Character actions that show their emotions in powerful ways. And protagonist and pacing issues because Bargaining Part 1 includes so many viewpoints and covers so much ground. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end when I talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Bargaining Part 1 aired the first time on October 2, 2001. It was written by Marty Noxon and directed by David Grossman. Though it aired on the same night as Part 2, two as a full double episode, I am going to deal with them one at a time, partly because otherwise this would be an extremely long podcast episode. Part one had a running time of 47 minutes and part two had a running time of 39 minutes. The total of 86 minutes is average for a double episode, but the part one being longer does throw off a bit the pacing, as I'll talk about later. Bargaining part one starts as it should with opening conflict. This is conflict that sometimes relates to a main plot and sometimes not, but it's there to pull the reader or viewer right into the story. Here we start with Spike running through the graveyard after a vampire. Tara follows him and this created a lot of confusion for me when I watched this as it aired because she looks a bit like Buffy in the dark graveyard and because she's wearing a red leather jacket. Then Giles follows them. All three slow down because Tara and Giles are breathless. And Spike gets the first line of the episode. While he's running, he says, come on. And they all stop and he says, I'm not going to get anything killed with you lot holding me back. Tara, gasping for breath, says she thought her spell would help, but it only seemed to confuse the vampire, not slow him down. And she says, could he maybe be taking prescription medications that interacted? And Spike just scoffs at her. Willow stands high above all of them on a monument, and she talks to the others in their heads to give them directions. An arm in red leather comes into the frame and punches the vamp. It's Buffy, but she struggles and the other three dive in to help. So on the first run, I did think this was Buffy and wondered if they were then going to give us flashbacks to explain how she could be there. So it took me a while to catch on that this was the Buffy bot. One clue is that she needs the other three to help her deal with this one vampire and still struggles. The scene cuts to Anya and Xander. 
Willow from above tells them there's a vampire nearby on the other side of a gravestone. It spooks Xander that she's talking in his head. He answers out loud because otherwise it's too weird. And even Anya says it's intrusive. In the meantime, Giles wields an axe, but the vampire gets the better of him. Spike jumps on the vamp to help, but then steps back as if he doesn't care and lights a cigarette. Giles is quite upset until he realizes Spike has lit the vampire on fire and the vampire dusts. Spike gives Giles a hand up as Giles grumbles that Spike didn't let him in on the plan. Spike is unsympathetic. He asks poor Giles if his life flashed before his eyes and Spike says, cup of tea, cup of tea, almost got shagged, cup of tea. Willow tells them to help Xander and Anya. She's still talking in their heads with the other vampire. This vampire does pretty well in the fight against Buffy, too. Spike dives into the fight, but eventually Buffy stakes the vampire. And here's where, for people who are a bit slow, it becomes clear this is the Buffy bot because she says in a bright voice, that'll put some marzipan in your pie plate, bingo. Spike asks Willow what's with the Dadaism. Willow says she was trying to program new puns and ended with word salad. It's a glitch. She'll fix it. Now we get more exposition through conflict over the gang's feelings about working with the Buffy bot, Buffy's death, and the looming danger. Giles cautions that they can't have the Buffy bot messing up. The underworld needs to believe that Buffy is alive and well. Willow is defensive. She put the bot's head back on and got her to stop those knock-knock jokes after all. And this prompts Buffy bot to ask, who's there? The gang ignores her and continues talking. Xander says, if you want her to be exactly, Spike cuts in, she'll never be exactly. And Xander says, I know. Tara says the only really real Buffy is really Buffy, and Giles responds, and she's gone. All of this catches us up if we didn't see the earlier seasons with what's going on. At five minutes in, the Buffy bot now strings it all together, still in her knock-knock joke phase, and says, if you want her to be exactly, she'll never be exactly, I know. The only really real Buffy is really Buffy. And she's gone who? This is a little over 10% through the episode. So if it were a one episode story, I'd look for the inciting incident or story spark here. But because it's a double episode arc, that will come later. I do think it's significant, though, that we get this issue of the glitching Buffy bot, which is key to the subplot that drives this episode forward. The scene cuts to credits. When we return, Willow and Tara are at the Summer's home in the morning. Willow's looking for her clogs and feeling terror about the big day. This is our first story question because we don't know yet why Willow is so concerned. In the kitchen, Tara offers Dawn pancakes, funny shapes, or rounds. Willow wants to go over the bot's programming again, but Tara tells her she's got it or not. All of this makes clear Tara and Willow now live there with Dawn and the Buffy bot who is making sandwiches. But Tara forgot to tell her to stop making them, so there are two large stacks, much to Xander's delight when he walks in the back 
door. He is thrilled to take them. This funny moment shows that the bot really is not perfect or further emphasizes that. And the story doubles down on it because when the phone rings, BuffyBot says she'll get it and everyone says no. Willow answers and at 8 minutes 12 seconds in, almost exactly 10% through the double episode, we get the story spark that sets off the main plot because it's Anya on the phone and Willow tells the others Anya found, quote, that thing, unquote, for tonight. Another great story question because the actor's expressions make it clear how important this thing is. And Willow adds to Xander, and you're her sweet cookie face. Willow tells Dawn it's just a Scooby meeting tonight. Spike will stay with her, which doesn't make Dawn happy. We get the sense she does not like being left out. The Buffy bot asks if her phone manner's not correct. They all reassure her she's fine, but if Dawn's dad calls, he might be able to tell the difference, and if he learns Buffy's dead, Dawn will be taken away. Dawn says she wants to stay there with Willow, Tara, and the Buffy bot, and the bot smiles and gives Dawn a big hug and says, I want you to stay here as well. You're my sister. Dawn's expression is so moving with both happiness to be there with the Buffy bot and great sadness over Buffy being gone. Now the gang talks about the Buffy bot being about to face the most dangerous challenge ever and the scene cuts to a banner for Parent Teacher Day hanging outside over a bunch of exhibits with students and teachers around them. Dawn tries to steer the bot past all of it, but Buffy Bot stops at a model of the city of the future. She stares at the miniature buildings and says she doesn't know of a breed of humans this small who will live there. Dawn awkwardly tries to laugh it off, but the teacher and the other student think the bot is pretty weird. In class, Dawn looks worried as the teacher lectures everyone on how the parents need to emphasize to their kids what school can mean, and the Buffy bot raises her hand, stands and says, school is where you learn. There's an awkward silence, but then the teacher says that's right. They need to focus on education. School is not just social and students have to understand that class matters more than lunch hour. The Buffy bot interjects again and says that she made lunch, peanut butter and jelly, which also seems like a non sequitur, except other parents jump in to complain about school lunches. Buffy bot smiles. She is a hit. At 11 minutes 41 seconds in at the magic box, Giles chides Anya about the register report and wants her to double check records. She asks if he's mad at her. When she was a demon, she used to torture people by making them double check spreadsheets for eternity. Giles claims he can't be comfortable leaving until he's sure all is right with the store. They argue about which items he's taking with him and end up in a slap fight over a statue. Xander marvels at their immaturity and reminds Anya Giles is leaving her the store. Giles corrects Xander. He will still be a partner and Anya mutters silent overseas partner. The audience learns so much from this conflict that Giles is planning to leave, that Anya will now or is now a partner. And we find out still more as 
Xander takes Anya aside and suggests she should be more grateful, and Anya knows that. But she is frustrated. Giles keeps saying he's going, and then he doesn't. And also, Anya says, he shouldn't be going at all, but they can't tell him. So this is another story question for the viewers. What is it that Giles can't know? Anya ends by saying that, It all leaves her with, quote, all this stress and bossiness stored up, end quote, that leaks out. I really love Anya throughout this episode. She is honest and funny and aware of her emotions. Xander urges patience, which she said she tried, quote, but it took too long, end quote. The conversation segues to Anya saying that life shouldn't stop just because Buffy's gone. She's sick of waiting to take over the store and to announce their engagement. This is such a great way to let new viewers know that Xander proposed and he has been holding off on telling any of their friends ostensibly because of Buffy's death. Anya argues it's happy news and happy news in hard times is a good thing. Xander claims if everything goes as planned, everything will be different and they'll know more after they talk to Willow and Tara. So this builds on that story question of what is it that's going to happen later? Anya reminds Xander the whole marriage thing was his idea. Quote, I didn't ask to be all crazy. End quote. Another great way to let the audience know what happened in the past and that, in fact, it was Xander who raised marriage, not Anya pushing for it. At 14 minutes, 34 seconds, Dawn tells Spike about how the Buffy bot impressed her homeroom teacher. He's not surprised the robot's predictable, boring, the perfect teacher's pet. And schools are factories that spew out mindless automatons. And then he realizes what he said and backpedals and tells Don she should go because, quote, Buffy would want you to, end quote. Don says, check one mindless automaton coming up. Spike suggests playing cards. Don tells him he doesn't have to stay with her. She's not the key anymore. No one's coming after her. After a little more back and forth, Spike slams the cards on the table and says, I'm not leaving you to get hurt. Not again. Now deal. His words and the violence with which he slams those cards down tell us so much not only about what happened, but how Spike feels about it, that he feels he failed and he blames himself. At 16 minutes, 20 seconds, a vampire attacks a woman in an alley. The Buffy bot intervenes and he runs as soon as he recognizes the Slayer. She goes after him to fight, but gets damaged. Her gears are exposed. There's sparks all over, and the vampire realizes she's a robot. The Buffy bot runs into a wall repeatedly while saying, vampires beware. The scene cuts to the Scooby meeting at Xander and Anya's apartment that night. Willow is shocked and worried that Anya went through the magic box suppliers to try to get the last known urn of Osiris for their spell. Building on that story question of why can't Giles know what's going on and also a question of what the spell is. Anya reassures them Giles is too busy not leaving to notice what she does, but says don't worry, she actually found it on eBay, along with a Backstreet Boys lunchbox for somebody. 
Willow says it's time, and Xander freaks out. Anya asks if she's sure, and both Tara and Willow say yes. Willow clarifies they'll go forward tomorrow night. Xander wants to pause and rethink. They're talking about raising the dead. This is deep stuff. At 19 minutes, 26 seconds, Willow says it's time to stop talking. They're bringing Buffy back tomorrow night, and the episode cuts to a commercial. We return to the same scene. Anya and Xander worry and question Willow, saying it feels wrong. And Tara says it is wrong. It's against all laws of nature. It's practically impossible. And if they're changing their minds, Willow says nobody's changing their minds, period. Xander asks who made her boss. And Anya and Tara remind him that he did. He said Willow should be the boss of the group. They all voted unanimously and made a plaque that said boss of us with sparkles. Sander concedes the point but says they were just talking then. Willow promises she can do this, rejects Anya's suggestion that they tell Giles and says no one can know. Not Giles, not Spike, not Dawn. They might not understand. Sander wants to know what will they do if Buffy comes back but wants to eat their brains. Willow tells him this isn't zombies. And it's not like Dawn trying to bring Joyce back or anything else they've tried because Buffy didn't die a natural death. She died of mystical energy. And this is important because that's a question that the audience would have. We saw Dawn try to bring Joyce back and go back on it because she didn't know if what she raised would be Joyce. In fact, it was pretty clear it wouldn't be. So we need to know that this is different. This is is really bringing the real Buffy back. And Tara agrees with everything Willow said and says the death of mystical energy means that they do have a shot. Willow adds that it also means they don't know where Buffy is. So until now, Willow has been intense, resolute, telling them what they need to do, but now we see more of Willow's emotions. She she becomes almost tearful and, and vulnerable when she says they don't know where Buffy is. Xander says they buried her body, but Willow is concerned about Buffy's soul, her essence, and says she could be trapped in some sort of hell dimension like Angel was, suffering eternal torment just because she saved us. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna leave her there. It's Buffy Buffy and Xander responds, what time do we meet? This is about 22 minutes, 23 seconds in. And I see it as the first major plot turn, what I think of as the one quarter turn for where it usually appears in a story. And that turn should come from outside the protagonist, spin the story in a new direction and raise the stakes. Thank you so much for coming back after the break. I wish I could tell you it was very restful for me. I did rest a lot. You might be able to hear a bit in my voice. I am still recovering from COVID. I am over three weeks in. Finally have my energy back, but I did a lot of sleeping. Though I hope to be done with the first major revision of my current novel, I am not, although I'm getting close. This is my sixth 
QC Davis mystery, The Forgotten Man, where Quill tries to solve the mystery of her sister's murder. Her sister was killed before Quill was born, and her body was found with that of another little girl. This is a really complicated plot. So all mysteries have two plots. One is the detective or sleuth or whoever it is trying to unravel the mystery. And with that plot, I follow the major plot points and turns that I break down here in Buffy and look at in so many other stories. And that's, I wouldn't say easy, but that is uh, the least complicated part of the plot. Then there is the underlying plot that already happened of the murder or whatever the crime is. And here there are two murders. So I need to figure out both of those and how they fit together and Quill solving the mystery and all of that needs to interweave and keep up the pace and keep readers engaged. So it has been a challenge, which is why I am doing one major rewrite that almost completely focuses on the plot and subplots. In my next rewrites, I'll look more closely scene by scene, description, characterization, how the dialogue flows, trying to make sure each character doesn't sound just like the other one. As I work, probably no surprise, I split the book into quarters. So I think of the first quarter going up to that first major turn, I focus on that, then the next quarter, up to that midpoint commitment, reversal. So right now I am in the last quarter of the book, which is so exciting. I really love this part because it is where everything is playing out. So while I wish I had done it faster, I'd, I'd hope to be done before the end of December and take a little break, a relaxation break, not a get over being sick or be sick break. Um, it is exciting to be almost done. And I'm still hoping to release the book by March of this year. I will let you know when it's available. In the meantime, you can find all my fiction, including the mysteries and my separate supernatural thriller series at lisalily.com. And if you would like to try out uh, an ebook free, there are two available. You can find those at lisalily.com slash free. And that's L-I-S-A-L-I-L-L-Y. So it's definitely a major turn here. The gang is going to try to raise Buffy. They've been preparing and preparing, but now it's time and they are united and it definitely raises the stakes. So the question is, does this come from outside the protagonist, which made me wonder who is the protagonist in Bargaining Part 1 and Two, the protagonist should actively pursue a goal throughout the story, be the main point of view character, and have the most at stake. And picking a protagonist in this episode is a little challenging and might be part of the 
pacing issue I felt when I first watched this episode. I had been so anticipating it, and yet it felt a bit slow and a bit off to me. And I'm not sure that was avoidable, because for one thing, there is so much the writers have to fill us in on that up until this point, the episode feels more like it's just setting the stage. Every story does some of that, but usually in Buffy, we are plunged into the story, um, we see some momentum much sooner. And specifically, we can tell who the protagonist is and what goal they're pursuing. But here, until now, we don't know. Now, I see Willow as being the one who is actively pursuing a goal. She's doing it behind the scenes. She's doing it through the others to some extent. Anya is the one searching for that urn, though we don't know that until now, but clearly she's the driving force. So she checks that box. She also has the most at stake. They all have a lot at stake. They want Buffy back. Uh, They don't want Giles to find out, apparently for fear that he might stop them. Ditto with Spike. But Willow has the most at stake because she's the one who's going to do the spell. She's the one pushing everyone to do it. It seems from this scene that if she weren't, probably the others would not go forward. Hard to say, but unlikely they would go forward. So she has the most at stake because if it fails, she's the one who has failed and because she is so distressed about where Buffy might be. She does not want to leave her friend there. And I love that callback to what Angel went through. That would be a powerful motivator if you think your friend died for you and to save the world and might be tortured because of it. But the other prong, the main point of view character, is tricky. We don't get a lot from Willow's point of view. We have everyone's points of view in this episode. So that makes it hard to pinpoint a protagonist. And the first time through watching made it a little harder to jump on board with the story, though of course there was no way I was not going to watch it. Going back to that one quarter turn, does it come from outside Willow? And yes, now that I see her as the protagonist, it does. Because while Willow is the one actively pursuing the goal, she says explicitly she needs everyone on board and it won't work without all of them. And when she is so upset, Xander finally agrees. And that is what makes the turn happen. So it's outside of Willow. Willow returns to the Summer's home and the Buffy bot is there. She thinks her feet are broken because she keeps walking sideways, not forwards, and can't go where she wants to go. She wanted to go out and look for Willow some more, but Spike kept her at the house. The bot argues her homing device requires her to find Willow when she's injured, something that the audience needs to know and understand for later. And it comes out very well here through this minor conflict with Spike. Willow tells her this time Spike was right. And Buffy gazes at Spike adoringly, apologizes for questioning him, and tells him she admires his brain almost as much as his washboard abs. Spike says to Willow, I told you to make her stop doing that. Willow says she thought she did. She'll try to fix it while she has the bot opened up. She asks Spike to hold the flashlight, but he 
already left. This action tells us so much about Spike. It hints at his past with the Buffy bot, how he had her created as a sex bot, and shows, again, the depth of his feelings. He cannot stand to have the Buffy bot talk like that to him, and he leaves without a word. Now we see the Buffy bot has feelings too, and she tells us more about how Spike has been acting because she tells Willow she thinks Spike stopped liking her. He never looks at her even when he's talking to her. Willow tries to reassure her that Spike is just being a vampire and promises to make the bot as good as new. The scene cuts to Dawn lying awake in bed at night. Finally, she goes into Buffy's room. The Buffy bot lies there on the bed motionless. Her insides are exposed. There are wires hooked up and lights flashing, but Dawn gets into bed and snuggles next to the bot. This action shows us so powerfully how Dawn feels, how much she misses Buffy, and it's key that the bot looks like a bot here. Her face looks like Buffy, but she is clearly a robot. We see the machinery. We see her hooked up to wires. She's not moving. She has no expression, and yet Dawn still clings to her. Now we see Giles' feelings in a very similar way. He is training the Buffy bot. While he says later he's checking her reflexes after the damage to her, as she punches in rhythm one side and then the other, he tells her, remember her breathing. Think of it as chi, a life source. She says she doesn't need to breathe, and he knows, but he thinks this will help her. And so she tries to do what he wants, but just blows out in one long breath, not at all human. So we see that Giles, too, is clinging to the Buffy bot and trying not to feel that loss of Buffy. Anya comes into the training room and points out that the concept of chi might be beyond a robot. Giles sees no harm in imparting a little Eastern philosophy, but Anya points out that the bot is a descendant of a toaster oven, not a long line of mystical warriors. After Anya leaves, the Buffy bot tries to make Giles feel better and says his teaching helps her. But Giles says Anya might be right. He's treating her as a human. The Buffy bot is confused when Giles seems to disagree with her that every Slayer needs her watcher. Giles thinks maybe Buffy would have been better off without him. He got his Slayer killed in the line of duty. The Buffy bot assures him it's not his fault, and he says, of course not. That's how all Watcher-Slayer relationships end, and he continues, quote, she's gone. I did my job, end quote. And the Buffy bot says, then why are you still here? So much of this, so very real, Giles survivor's guilt, and the bot asking the question that Anya has been asking, that Giles perhaps unconsciously has been asking himself. But when someone outside, or in this case, something outside says it, it finally hits home, as we'll find out. At 37 minutes, 56 seconds, 
demons on motorcycles ride up to a demon bar. Inside, the vampire that damaged the Buffy bot brags to one of them about cornering the Slayer. He tells about the fight very dramatically and too slowly for the demon who grabs him by the throat and is convinced he's lying. The vampire insists the Slayer is a machine. They go back and forth, and the demon drags him to a gang of demons at a table. This is the start of scenes about the demons that are a bit too long, which I don't understand given that this episode has a 47-minute runtime. I don't know why they didn't cut back a little on this because now the vampire has to tell the gang of demons the same story. They call him a blood rat and the first demon does cut into the long story to tell the others the slayer's been replaced by a machine. They are all excited that there's no slayer in Sunnydale that she's been replaced by some sort of decoy because there's nowhere like the Hellmouth for a party and they all laugh, evil villain laughs. The vampire hopes they'll let him join the gang now, though they don't usually let vampires in because they should be grateful that he shared this information, but the first demon kills him before he finishes talking. This action tells us a lot about the demons. Past demons on Buffy don't usually kill each other. Even vampires, though they uh, do see vampires as different from themselves. But given the way the underworld all condemns Spike for fighting vampires and demons, there is a certain amount of solidarity there. So these demons are more vicious than uh, at least some of the demons that we have seen in the past. Now we get a scene of the demons on their motorcycles again, riding away from the bar, kicking up dust on the road as loud discordant music plays. This is a huge contrast to the next scene that is quiet, it's all nature, no machines. Willow wears a white dress, sits on the grass. There are woods around her and a swamp and nature sounds. She recites a spell in a quiet voice, asks the blessed one to come forward, and a baby deer comes out of the woods. In a shocking twist, when the fawn reaches Willow, Willow slits its throat and holds it as it struggles off screen. It's clearly distressing to her. She's breathing hard and has a hard time getting the words out as she asks it to accept humble gratitude for its offering. And she ends, may you find wings to the kingdom. At 32 minutes, nine seconds, at the magic box, Xander tells Willow Giles isn't there when she enters, so she doesn't have to be cryptic about getting that last ingredient. When he asks what it was, she says wine of the mother, a kind of black market item. This disturbs Tara because the black market is dangerous, but Willow reassures her she was careful. This is a key moment for Willow's character because up until now, Tara seemed to know and be on board with everything Willow did and said, but now Willow lied to Tara. Also, getting this last major ingredient that will allow them to do the spell happens right about the three-quarter mark 
of the episode. That's where we see another major plot turn. So it's interesting, um, while I have some issues with pacing in this episode, there are some pretty major turns right about where they are ought to be if it were a, a single episode story. Tara's anxious about doing the spell and Anya asks if she wants to look at the money. It always calms Anya down, which I identify with. I may have mentioned in past episodes, but uh, when I was in my 20s, I, I had some serious issues with not being able to work due to an injury and money. And so later in life, when I was very stressed, it actually would help me to look at not literally a cash register, but when I have my law firm to, to look at the uh, money that came in and look at the accounts. This brings Anya to the cash register and she finds a note from Giles. He's not one for long goodbyes, so he decided to slip out quietly and he signs the note, Love, Giles. If you want to join the patrons who help support Buffy and the Art of Story and get to listen to additional episodes, you can do that for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lily. That's L-I-S-A. M is in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. In the latest bonus episode from December, I covered the theme of found families in Buffy and looked ahead to how the found family operates so much differently in season six. Other bonuses include a breakdown of Angel's pilot episode and a bonus entitled, Is Riley a Boyfriend Bot? You can listen to all of those if you become a patron today. And for those of you who already are patrons, thank you so much for your continued support. It not only helps me cover the costs of the podcast, it encourages me to keep going during those times, which are rare but do happen when my enthusiasm for Buffy and the amazing writing and directing isn't enough to keep me going, such as for example, when I am recovering from COVID. So thank you again. And those of you who would like to join in and support the show and hear more Buffy and the Art of Story can do so at patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lily. The scene cuts to the airport. Giles sits alone, but our gang plus Dawn joins him. He says he was trying to avoid a scene, and Willow says, like we'd make a scene. And Giles says, not you, me. They brought him parting gifts, a snack-sized apple pie, Anya says, to remind him of all the good food he won't be eating. And Tara gives him a rubber monster finger puppet and says, grr, arg. Dawn tells him they had to get the gifts at the gas station they were in a hurry and she made him the card in the car which is why the letters are shaky they all look sad as he opened it and he is clearly touched by the message willow tells him they wanted him to know they'll miss him they'll be okay and says again they'll miss him but they'll be okay anya promises to take really good care of his money they hug one at a time 
Anya throws herself into his arms, which is kind of sweet. Xander and Giles are awkward, but they do hug, and Willow and Dawn get the longest hugs. Giles tells Dawn she can call anytime if she needs anything. She looks devastated. Willow struggles to be, quote, stiff upper lippy, unquote, and tells him he should get going and says, don't you have a life or something? And Giles responds, I suppose that's the question, really. At 37 minutes, 54 seconds, a plane flies overhead outside the airport. Willow worries about what Giles will do over there. He never talks about people from England. He might be lonely, which made me think of, again, how much of a father figure Giles is. He is like empty nest Giles here. Also, nice way to call out something the audience might be thinking, which is, how well does Giles know anyone in England? There are the watchers who came and tried to kill Buffy. And there is Olivia, who we haven't heard anything about lately, but he really doesn't talk about missing friends uh, or really missing England. Tara walks with her arm around Dawn, reassuring her that they can call Giles tomorrow. The other three hang back and talk about the timing. They can't believe Giles is leaving right when they are about to do the spell. Willow says he'll come back if it works. It's almost dark now. Willow wants to go over things one more time. Nothing can go wrong tonight. While I understand emphasizing that nothing can go wrong because we need to know how delicate this spell is, this adds to my issue with pacing here because we have had a lot of scenes. Uh, the, the scene with the gang where they decide to go forward is split into two parts and doubles down on a couple of their worries and concerns. And I'm fine with that because it leads to the big decision, to the big turn. But then again in the shop, there is a conversation about how they should all stay together before the spell and Tara having butterflies in her stomach and now again we get them talking about worry about the spell foreshadowing is good it's important but it feels like a bit too much here and now we get another motorcycle scene this one isn't that long and and i guess you could argue we need it although i do think it duplicates what we see later but it's twilight a row of motorcycles is on the road to sunnydale and we cut at 39 minutes 23 seconds to buffy's grave anya struggles to light the last candle at a minute to midnight when they are all lit willow dabs blood on her face looking very warrior like it's a, a reminder of buffy in the dream sequence at the end of season four, Willow pours blood into the urn of Osiris, starts the spell, and something slashes Willow's arms. She's breathing hard, clearly in pain. Blood rises at the slashes. Tara assures the others that Willow said she'd be tested and not to stop for anything. If they break the cycle now, it's over. This foreshadowing I like. And I think it more than covers some of the worries expressed in earlier scenes. Something is crawling under the skin of Willow's arm and motorcycles roar in the distance, making our friends uneasy. They don't know what it 
is, or more uneasy, I should say. At 41 minutes, 13 seconds, the scene cuts to the motorcycles racing through town, running over things, and people near the espresso pump, that coffee shop that the gang gathers at. The demons set fires, they bash in store windows, they throw Molotov cocktails. These demons, in addition to killing that vampire, they look more ominous and less cartoony than most of the demons we have seen on Buffy, partly because they are more human-like. They they dress uh, like bikers, a little bit exaggerated, uh, a lot of black leather and metal. Their faces are also somewhat human but distorted. They have razor-sharp teeth. In their actions, here, usually we see demons with a specific goal. Yes, they want to cause uh, trouble or chaos or violence, but it is usually in pursuit of something, even if it's take over the village or the world, like the giant snake mayor. But here, these demons are smashing and burning and killing for the sheer fun of smashing and burning and killing and looting. At 41 minutes 57 seconds at the grave, Willow pleads with Osiris to let Buffy cross over. She has trouble speaking and there is a very gross and disturbing scene where Willow coughs up a giant snake that crawls onto the grave. Tara keeps saying it's a test, it's a test. The scene cuts to Spike in the dark in front of the TV at the Summers' home. He hears the smashing windows and revving engines, goes to the window to see what's happening, and tells Dawn to stay away from the window. Of course, she doesn't. We get more scenes of the bikers trashing the town, breaking car windows, and this too feels a bit long to me. At 43 minutes, 17 seconds, the Buffy bot confronts a biker in town. Others gather around. She trades a few quips with the leader. Knives shoot out of his hand and he slashes the bot, exposing machinery, sparks fly, and he says, you're nothing but a toy, a pretty toy. Want to play? The bot responds, I would, but you've injured me. I have to return to Willow. The bot fights them all and runs off. And there's another scene where they chase her on the bikes. And this this adds to uh, uh, the episode feeling a bit off because these bikes are kind of slow. These demons are smashing and burning and they're so set on destruction, yet can the Buffy bot really stay ahead of them? Uh, it doesn't seem likely. We haven't seen that she is super, super speedy, faster than a vehicle can go. Now, perhaps they are just toying with her. The leader did say, want to play, but it is convenient that they stay behind her long enough for her to get to the cemetery. Though, to be fair, we don't know how far the cemetery is from town. It's Sunnydale. It could be smack in the middle of town for all we know. At 44 minutes, 57 seconds, red light shines around Willow and lightning bolts and crackling electricity around her. She holds her arms out, breathing hard, commanding Osiris to release Buffy. 
the Buffy bot runs toward the grave saying, Willow, I need service. And the bikers, going slow, follow. Anya shrieks and ducks. The bikes circle the bot and Willow. The red light is still all around her until a bike rolls over the urn and breaks it. Willow yells, no. The light disappears. The electricity disappears. And Willow falls face forward on the grave. Tara shouts her name. A biker tries to grab Tara, another aims for Xander as he is attempting to pick up Willow. The Scoobies split up, Anya and Tara go one way, Xander half dragging, half carrying, Willow goes the other. For once when a group splits up, this is believable to me in most horror stories it is not but here given the number of bikers uh it makes sense that they split and and try not to be one target all together xander gets willow some ways away she comes to and asks if the spell worked he says he's sorry and she collapses into unconsciousness again we are now nearing the midpoint plot point of the double episode. Normally that would come a little earlier because two episodes would be 86 minutes so we'd look for it at 43 minutes but because bargaining part one runs long we find it later. At the midpoint of a very strongly structured story, the protagonist typically makes a major commitment or suffers a major reversal or both. Here at 46 minutes, 38 seconds, light swirls into Buffy's coffin. The eyes of her corpse open while the body is still desiccated and only gradually does Buffy's face fill in. She starts to look like Buffy, gasps for air as that this light swirls around her, looks panicked, and we realize Buffy has come to life buried in her coffin and part one ends at 46 seconds, 56 minutes. This is a major reversal for Willow our protagonist, first she had what looked like the most major reversal that the spell was defeated did not work. But now uh, it has happened, but Buffy is buried alive. A great midpoint reversal and a great end to the episode. So if the double episode hadn't aired together, imagine waiting until the following week to find out what happened. That's it for the breakdown of the episode other than foreshadowing and spoilers. There is a DVD commentary on the writing and directing. I will cover that in the next episode with Bargaining Part too because uh, I am already running long here but there are some great insights in that commentary. If you are not hanging around for foreshadowing and spoilers, thank you for listening. Please do come back next time for Bargaining Part 2. If you find the plot points and turns I talk about here helpful and want to try them for your own writing, remember you can download story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash worksheets. Lots of foreshadowing in Bargaining Part 1 for the rest of Season 6. First off, how important Spike will be to the season because we see Spike 
first, and he also gets the first line of season six. He says, come on, I'm not going to get anything killed with you lot holding me back. Such a symbolic line because the Scoobies and Buffy and the chip in his head hold Spike back from killing. But a major theme will be what does that mean for Spike as a character? He is still, season six will establish, evil. He is still soulless. And how that affects Buffy and uh, her season arc and Spike's season arc will all play out in season six. Now, as I talked about in that bonus episode, I have some, some issues with how the writers did that. Whether I buy it, I will get to that during the season, but this definitely foreshadows a lot of it. The line about uh, if Dawn's father learns Buffy is dead, Dawn will, will be taken away, foreshadows another issue hanging over Buffy during season six, the fear that uh, she will lose Dawn. And maybe it's more fair to say it hangs over Dawn because for a lot of season six, Buffy is so disconnected that she doesn't seem that concerned about Dawn. But this foreshadows that episode, which is not one of my favorites, uh, uh, where Buffy turns invisible and the social worker uh, threatens to put Dawn in foster care. Dawn's unhappiness when she's not included in the Scooby meeting foreshadows how left out Dawn will feel this season and how sad and lonely she will be. Anya and Xander, of course, so much foreshadowing of how long it takes Xander to tell everyone about the engagement and then the way the engagement ends when he leaves Anya at the altar. So I love that here we get that reminder, Xander's the one who proposed and Anya didn't ask to be all crazy. But once he did propose, she's clearly all in on this, which will be devastating for her. So much foreshadowing about Willow. That line, nobody's changing their minds period. This is Willow, not magically, but through her choices about how to communicate, doing what Tara will point out later, trying to fashion the world to her liking. She wants to override their objections in that moment by force of her will. Now, she does then give reasons, especially her reason about fearing Buffy is being tortured, that persuasion. Xander, but this is that hint of Dark Willow and what she will be like as she goes forward using magic. Also, her telling them no one can know, not Giles, not Spike, not Dawn, they might not understand, foreshadows Spike's anger that they didn't tell him, and Spike telling Xander that Willow knew things could go wrong, that Buffy could come back wrong, and that Spike would oppose her on doing this because of it. And Xander doesn't buy it, but this is pretty clear why Willow doesn't want them to know, and Giles as well. This foreshadows that he would have told them not to do it because of all the terrible things that could happen. The explanation that they can bring Buffy back because she didn't die a natural death, she died of mystical 
energy. Tara joins in on this explanation and it is so sad because this is why we will learn that Willow can't bring Tara back. Tara dies I guess you wouldn't say a natural death. She doesn't die of a heart attack. um, And that's what Willow tries to argue with Osiris when she calls on him to bring Tara back. But it is natural in the sense of this does happen in the course of human life. It is a human being, Warren, who takes Tara's life and he doesn't do it by a magical spell. It is by a gun, something human made. And so that's why Willow won't be able to bring Tara back. And returning to Dark Willow, Willow telling that lie to Tara. She doesn't tell Tara what she did to get the fawn's blood. She claims she got it on the black market. Also foreshadows Willow's willingness to cross lines and to lie to Tara to hide things from Tara to accomplish her goals. Anya underscores this by making that comment about the black market being all baby teeth and spooky fluid and Willow responds they needed it for the spell so it's quote good stuff in my book close quote. I don't think you could get a stronger statement of where Willow is going this season. If she can do a spell If she needs to do a spell, then whatever she has to do to get there is good stuff. That is it for foreshadowing and spoilers and for this episode. Thank you again for listening. Come back in two weeks for Bargaining Part 2, where the gang discovers that Buffy is alive, but she is not quite right. You can find back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash Buffy Story or on my YouTube channel. And you can find the book editions of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash Buffy Books. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2021. All rights reserved.